Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Handwoven, Piecework, Spinoff, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Anne Merrow. This season is sponsored by Webs. Webs, America's yarn store, is your source for everything you need for your next weaving project. Webs carries a wide selection of yarns, looms, tools, and accessories, and you can save up to 25% every day with the Webs discount. Visit yarn.com for more info. Deborah Robeson is known to and even revered by a generation of hand spinners as the author of the Fleece and Fiber Sourcebook with Carol Icarius. She has a distinguished track record as an editor, Shuttle Spindle and Diepot, Spinoff Magazine, and books including the massive Aldenamus Big Book of Hand Spinning. Deborah has devoted herself to learning and teaching about the heritage of rare breed sheep and has worked with the Livestock Conservancy's Shave Em to Save Em program. So, Deb, how much wool is in your house? My daughter just cracked up. Um, where are we counting? Are we counting upstairs, downstairs, the storage unit, the shed? I My spreadsheet has about 300 fleeces on it. However, many of them have cycled through here and gone on. Becca, any guesses on how much wool is in the house? Squished or not. Squished or not, she says. <laughs> So there's a lot. There's a lot. Well, I think that that actually answers my question. Yes, there's a lot of wool here. How did you get so much wool in your house? It wasn't entirely intentional. Um, and there are times when I would very much like it to vanish. Uh, but because I teach workshops on breed-specific wools, and because a lot of those are hard to obtain, I have to acquire them when I can find them. And for each workshop, I need specific fleeces. So I go out looking for them if I don't have them. And the net result is there's inventory. Now, if I trace back to your big book, the Fleece and Fiber Source book, it kind of makes sense that there are so many different sheep breeds involved. But you started off as someone with a general interest in spinning, right? Yes, but I've always been interested in breed-specific wools from day one. Uh, at which point, the only wool that I could get to spin was from a Dorset flock that was about 20 miles from where I was living. However, at that point, Paula Simmons was uh, sending out samples of hand-spun wool to people who requested it and paid a couple bucks uh, because she was kind of the first one out there doing that in a public way. And very shortly thereafter, I began to figure out that there were different qualities of wool and got interested in the breeds and started a print it out, punch holes in it, put it in a notebook resource for myself. And this was like in the 1970s. So it's been there a long time. But yeah, I have a, I have a general interest in spinning. But what has captivated me most intensely is the differences 
in the natural animal-grown fibers and especially wool. Now, I'm cheating because I have seen your house, but I know that there are not sheep in the backyard. So do you have farming in your background? Yes, I do have farming in my background. Um, I have farming in that my grandfather grew up in southwestern Wisconsin and was it was a farming community. And then he ended up in Illinois and came basically from nowhere, but ended up with two businesses, one of which was a dairy farm. And while I didn't actually live there full time, it was about 40 miles from our house. And all three of the boys in that family, including my dad, rotated through the farm as workers. And it was the place that the family gathered. And that's where I learned to climb trees. That's where I learned to stay away from the bull. That's where I learned to drive a windrower. Um, That's where I learned what newborn calves look like um, and learned a lot about uh, what's involved in agriculture. So, yeah. Do you have a particular favorite kind of sheep or is it more the understanding the the breadth of knowledge that's interesting to you? It's the breadth of knowledge. Um, I Whatever sheep I'm currently studying is the one that most fascinates me. And an example of that actually is a project I recently completed where I was working with all of the 23 breeds on the Livestock Conservancy's rare breeds list, which meant that I was doing Barbados Black Belly, and I was doing St. Croix, and I was doing Wiltshire Horn, none of which is in the Fleece and Fiber source book because they are not considered primary fiber sources. We did have a small sidebar on page 33 in which we had Katahdin representing the hair breeds, but I had not spun the fibers of those other three, and I'll admit I was a little apprehensive because of the numbers of fibers that, of various types that I'd found. And I thought, okay, what are these going to be like? Are they going to be similar to each other? They are not. They are dramatically different from each other. And I had a good time. So uh, the surprises that I keep finding are part of what's interesting about this. And yeah, I can pick a favorite sheep now and again. But usually it's the one in my hands. You mentioned Shave Them to Save Them, which is a really cool program. And I feel like that's really perfect for this time. Have you been surprised at how popular that's been? In a way, I haven't. In a way, I haven't been surprised. When we did the Save the Sheep project in around 1998 to 2000, the interest at that time was very high. And I think that other things have come along since like the Fleece and Fiber Source book, like Clara Park's book. There's been a, there have been a variety of really nice books that I think have raised people's awareness just enough. And yeah, I think people being locked away by COVID, it didn't hurt. <laughs> but it was already going strong. It was already going really strong. Because I think spinners are curious. Fiber people are curious. They are. And there's something about the the organization of it and the fact that with Shave Him to Save Him, I think you buy four ounces and which you can get as yarn or fiber and you have a passport. So a sticker really makes everything 
exciting. Makers make things better. Passports are wonderful. Things that you can like, okay, I stamp that page. Love it. I love it myself. Yeah, I think it was it was brilliant. But there is something about, you know, I've read about a lot of things, but actually having them in my hands isn't something that happens as much. Well, and part of the thing that I like about Shave Them to Save Them is you can work with yarn. If you're a spinner, great. But if you're a knitter you can, or a weaver or a crocheter or whatever, you can still participate fully. And it also uh, motivates farmers and manufacturers to produce breed-specific wools, which uses it faster, which means that there's more money for the shepherds. So anyway, it's, it's, uh, I think it's one of the most exciting things that's come along for a long time. So you mentioned you teach classes in breed-specific wools. What do people find most surprising in your classes? Is there, is there one thing where somebody's like, oh my gosh, every time? Not really. I would say that the one thing that I do enjoy most where surprise comes up is where I am teaching a breed with enough time that I can bring in three different fleeces from the same breed so that people get an understanding of what is consistent in the breed and yet how much variety there is. Some of them, there's quite a lot of consistency and some of them, it's dramatically different. So I think that what I enjoy sharing most is the individuality of each fleece as well as the individuality of the breeds. But yeah, um, I would say most, okay, what most people may be surprised by is when they begin with clean but otherwise unprocessed fiber and they realize that taking it back to that point or to the rough lease, but because of time, we don't do that. Um, they have more control over their finished product and the quality of the result will be higher because it's been hand processed. And I use machine processed wool all the time. I love it. But, but there is just something else in that beginning from the sheep. There's a liveliness to it. Do you get to do much spinning yourself um, for projects or do you tend to be more of a sampler? I have been a sampler for a very long time because that's what I've been kind of forced to do. Um, Throughout the four active years of working on the Fleece and Fiber source book, it was all samples. And since then, I have been working to build up what I call my swatch library which is breed-specific swatches. And there are two sets. There's a stockinette set that's four inches square, roughly. And then there's a a set that's six inches square that is in a pattern. And I had planned to do those from hand-spun yarn, but my hand-spun yarn ended up being used for the swatches in the book. So that went away. So I started saying, okay, how do I quickly build this up again? And it was with commercial yarns. So I was going out and looking for commercial breed-specific yarns. And now I am starting to be able to spin some again to add to that swatch collection. Um, I do have a lot of hand-spun textiles that I've made. And I kind of have as much as I can reasonably wear. Um, And I do give them to some very, very special people. So in a way, 
while I will spin for projects and I will spin extensively, it's not a need or a compulsion at this point. I mean, I, I love the hand-spun garments that I've made. I love them so much that I don't feel any need to replace them. And they wear really well, so, you know, I, yes. it's really hard to wear them out. <laughs> you know, it's interesting talking to you. Um, sometimes I get the feeling that people think of spinners as being kind of go with the flow, you know, live in the moment, just experience what's going through your hands. And what you're talking about is very kind of a pleasure in the structure and a pleasure in kind of understanding how these things all go together. That's really strong for me. And I also really appreciate spinning in the moment. Extremely. It, it is an absolute treat to me to spin regardless of the purpose. Yeah, I keep a spindle and some fiber next to my computer, although, you know, I tend to keep my hands on the keyboard all the time. <laughs> when I was editing Spinoff, I had to be spinning to write the editorial. It did not matter what else was going on when it was time to write the editorial. The wheel came out. And it, it always worked. That's funny. I don't think I spun it all the time. I was the editor of Spinoff. Understandable. Yeah. Yeah. So how long were you the editor of Spinoff? The first issue of 1988 until the second issue of 2000. So somewhere 11, 12 years, somewhere in there. Did you like being the editor of a magazine? Yes. I ask partly because you've gone on to be a book editor. To, to oh, I started book. at books. Um, and I was, I was actually hired at Interweave to be a book editor. And then Spinoff needed an editor. And then I was both for a while. And then, you know, back and forth. But no, I started with books, went to magazine. Or did I start with magazine? I had a literary magazine first, way, way back. Um, but that's a whole different ballgame. Um, and then I did books. I was a university press editor. Um, and I've done trade, literary, and scholarly books. Yeah. And you have also been a publisher yourself. Yes. Yes. I got backed into that. And some parts of it I've done really well and some parts of it not so well because I really like the creative pieces and I don't like the administrative. I do it when I have to, but I have not been able to find anybody who'd pick up that piece for me. And um, it's necessary, but I don't love it. And your website was The Independent Stitch. Yes. I love that. How did you think that up? Um, it's kind of a joke because there is no such thing as an independent stitch. Every stitch depends on something. That's very true. You've got to either have fabric or another stitch. And so I just thought, okay, what 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 am I going to do for a website name and kind of I have I have semi two personal ad identities online. One is independent stitch and that's much more prevalent. But when I signed up for Twitter, you know, it's like what's your Twitter handle going to be? And I looked at a wall and at a collage I'd made and one of the things I had cut out was effortless zone because there's that sort of Zen uh, flow that I was looking for when I made the collage. So that's my Twitter handle is effortless zone. That seems like the opposite of Twitter. 
Yeah, it is. And I'm not on Twitter much. <laughs> I'm not on Facebook much either. Um, I think people uh, want to connect with me on Facebook, and I'm sure that there's some place on my website that, that my virtual assistant put up a sign up for Facebook. And it's like, I'm never there. You know, I do five minutes in the morning, uh, read a couple things regularly, check the top of my feed. The algorithms are not showing me who I want to see, and I don't care to spend the time to make them do that. So if I see people I want to see, which I occasionally do, um, I might respond, which messes up the algorithms again. Anyway, I'm not very good at that. I'm on social media, but I'm really bad at it. I don't know about social media, but the sort of inter- interconnected communications we have now have, have been a great way to find people with similar interests, including unusual sheep. That's true. And one of the things, okay, I have a, a newsletter that I send out intermittently, so you can sign up for it on my website. And I do every two or three months, I'll write one. It tends to be long because I don't write it unless I have something I'm thinking about. Um, it may take me six weeks to write a newsletter. Uh, but that's been interesting because of who I hear back. It's not a whole lot of people, but they're very interesting people who who drop me a note when the newsletter goes out. Most of the people I see on Facebook are sheep-related. Well, and that is what the algorithm does. It shows you more of what you like. So pretty soon Facebook will tell you there's nobody but sheep in the world. That is true. And that's really a good thing because people complain about the negative qualities of social media and Facebook. Well, all I'm seeing are shepherds, you know, (laughs) and um, they're talking about how much they care for their sheep and they're solving problems together. And there's a lot of, you know, my feed on Facebook is pretty positive. That and dogs. I get dogs too. And your dogs are bred to work with sheep, right? Yes. Um, We have for 28 years rescued herding dogs. So they are border collies, Australian shepherds, or crosses of that type that have for some reason not fit the environment they were in. They may have been failed herders. Uh, They may have been, oh, we saw a babe, so let's, you know, adopt a border collie. Oh, we can't we can't handle this dog. That kind of, sometimes I'm sure one of them, I think, ran away from home and then was picked up as a stray. She came out of Missouri and was a treasure. Anyway, so yeah, we generally have two at a time. At the moment, as some, sometimes we have three if we're fostering. But at the moment, we just have one because we don't know what happened in his first five years, but he is terrified of other dogs. He is absolutely wonderful at home, and he was also good with the dog that we lost in January. So they were buddies. But we uh, introducing him to another dog at this point, and he's 12, wouldn't be super fair. So for the moment, Tam is an only dog, but there will be two again someday. We're in no hurry. He's a sweetheart. So yeah, we, we rescue herding dogs. I'm not sure how many people think about border collies and that sort of thing as as being part of a class of herding dogs and what that meant, like that sheep go together with dogs. Yes. And not just herding dogs, because there are guardian dogs. 
that are totally different characteristics. And one of the topics that I try to stay um, aware of without being totally sucked into is the genetics of the development of dog breeds. I mean, I, I study genetics all the time, partly for sheep, but there's a lot of research going on with dogs as well. And I mean, you've got these totally different instincts that have been bred into those categories of dogs. Um, and we've had a guardian dog who lived with us for six months. Um, her people were, um, they lost their home in a wildfire. And we ended up having this dog who filled our whole living room with us for a while. And it was hard to give her back because we really liked her. <laughs> but of course we had to. Um, but yeah, those dogs are bred to be low key and to direct their energy toward protection. So you don't say they don't have a prey instinct, but it's directed not at the sheep, but at the coyote or the mountain lion or the bear. Um, on the other hand, you've got the border collies and Aussies and their prey instinct is headed toward getting the sheep to go where they need to go without hurting them, which is like, it's an amazing level of control that border collies have. Um, and they have tremendous energy and tremendous intelligence, which is why for a lot of people, they don't make good pets. And we've done agility and obedience and rally. And, you know, it's like, okay, how are we going to keep the dog's brain occupied? Because may have, may have bombed out on sheep, may have not have had the right, package for that job, but still has all of these characteristics. And needs a job. And needs a job. Yes. And needs company too. Uh, so it's a good thing that we have folks around our house who work at home. Um, we had one who had severe separation anxiety. Mostly they haven't, uh, but we also don't ask them to do a lot in the way of separation pieces. I mean, we, we go away for the day or whatever we need to do. Um, but we're around a lot. They're not on their own. Tam just walked through. <laughs> well, the jobs that we ask dogs to do change, but the jobs that we ask sheep to do have changed too. Oh, yeah. They're, yeah. The biggest shift was from wool to meat. And we are we are asking them to be primarily meat animals these days. And I'm, I'm all about wool. I'm all about wool. We need to be using wool. We need to get away from the synthetics. We need to be using wool. I was amazed when I talked to some Rambouillet breeders, and they think of Rambouillets as meat sheep. Yep. Yep. They are a dual-purpose breed because their wool is useful to the wool pool. It's high quality. But it's not their primary income source. So did all of these different sheep breeds evolve for a different job? Different jobs and different environments. I would say the environment is the driver um, a bit more than the jobs. Of course, we're talking the whole breadth of sheep here. And, and when you start off, you have uh, landrace breeds, which are fitted to a specific environmental niche. 
and then as time goes on, people decide, oh, I, this quality of this breed is much more important to me, so I'm going to breed for it. And then you end up with an industrialized standard breed that has a specific job to do, if that made sense. Um, so, yeah, envir- environment's an enormous shaper. And then we pick within that. And sometimes, like with a caracal, that's a breed that can tolerate uh, very difficult deserty type environments. It produces a wool that you think, okay, well, what are we going to do with this? And what you do with it is make exquisite rugs and other um, felts and things that are really durable. And in the Middle East, they also make stockings out of caracal which I think most people in this culture would consider intolerable. But um, it could be their feet are tougher from using them more without shoes. I mean, ours would be too if we did that. Um, But they end up being able to have caracal socks that are really hard to wear out. So anyway, I think in part you take the fiber and say, okay, what will it be exquisitely used for? So I actually do count sheep breeds when I'm trying to go to sleep. And I realized that everything I can think of is England. There's like three I can think of in France, some in Australia, some in the U.S. But I don't tend to think of the sheep beyond these sort of English-speaking regions. And when we did the Fleece and Fiber source book, Carol Carius and I spent six months determining what breeds we could include and how we would organize them. And that was intensive, an intensive six months. And we had to limit to the breeds readily available to English-speaking fiber folk. And there are a few now that are available that were not then. But there was otherwise no way the book would ever get finished. And also people couldn't afford it and it wouldn't fit on the bookshelf and so forth. There are about 1,200 breeds around the world. Um, the places that we missed, quote unquote, would have been continental Europe, China, and India. So there are, in terms of wool breeds, if you go to hair breeds, you've got more Africa. A lot of the African wool breeds came from England, so um, and from continental Europe, from France, and so forth. But the other, well, okay, I'm thinking we've got Mexico. There's some Mexican Landry's breeds that we didn't get to. Um, I think there are sheep on every continent except Antarctica. Yep, there are. I had no idea that they were sheep that were, you know, landrace or anything else in in China and India. Oh yeah, there's a, there are a lot of them there. There's a whole different um, genealogical array from that part of the world. I get into some of that research when I'm looking at the origins of domesticated sheep, and it's like, oh wow, there's this whole other castle over here, and I will never even remotely live long enough. That's part of why I'm glad to see some other people in some places picking up some of this. There's a woman in Portugal who's starting to look at the Portuguese breeds in a way that is similar to the Fleece and Fiber source book. We need that. 
um, we need other people coming along and doing this work. Um, I won't say that I've hit my limit by any means, but I am looking at different aspects of it now. So I am looking at domestication and I am looking at the migration of breeds up into Europe from the sources, original sources of domestication. That's a whole world into itself. But yeah, we need we need lots of people doing this so that I can go see what they've come up with. You know, and we're talking about sheep, but I have some awareness that some people are doing this with goats as well. And there's, you know, I think, well, there's there's Angora and there's Cashmere and then there's Pagora. But there's a whole range of goats, there's, fiber goats. Yes, there are. Yep. Yep. I'm actually working on a little project right now um, relating to alpacas and to the various types of mohair because the different qualities of mohair are as if they were different breeds. It's the same animal, but at different, okay, part of it's different ages and they classify them as if it were ages, for example, kid, yearling, and adult. But you can have a yearling goat that is producing kid mohair. It, so it's, it's, it does relate to the age, but not on a one-to-one relationship. So, yeah, there's a whole world of goats out there. And yaks. You think all the yak is the same. All the yak is not the same. All the camel is not the same. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought there were just the, the camels with a B and the camels with a D. Right. No. Nope. <laughs> no. <laughs> there are different breeds of camels. There are different breeds of yaks. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So... Do you get interested at all in the the people who are involved with developing these different breeds, or is it the sheep themselves who tell you the story? Both. I am fascinated by the people. They are a little harder to study, and I, you know, I, I the the questions are harder to resolve. But yes, I am very interested in the people. I follow the sheep, but part of that is because of what it reveals about the people. It's interesting. I, I was talking to Linda Courtright, who yeah. is also very much interested in that nexus between the people and the, and the animals. And She has gone more in that direction than I have. I mean, our work is complementary in many, many ways. Um, and I love it when our paths cross. So if you, I, I know that you teach classes and introduce spinners to all kinds of you know, ideas that you think they should know. But what is something that you think every spinner should try? Basically, working from grease wool at least once. It does not need to be a whole fleece. And they probably need a little hand-holding, especially through the washing. But I think that every spinner should understand from shearing to the finished product, as small as that project may be. Now, when you say grease wool, that does bring up a controversy because, you know, you said, and then help through the washing. I'm actually coming across more people who are spinning like in the grease. Which is what we did in the 1970s. Yeah, that's what we did back then. And there are reasons to do that. Uh, One of the primary ones that I can think of is if you are spinning for very, very fine yarn to make a Shetland shawl. 
You'll want to spin in the grease because it gives you some extra friction and you can spin finer. But it's got to be a fresh fleece. So if we are going to be storing fleeces, uh, the longer you store it, the less pleasant, easy, and controllable spinning the grease becomes. So, yes, spinning in the grease with a freshly shorn, reasonably clean fleece is an absolute delight. In general, I don't spin in the grease because I do store my wool, because I don't well, okay, if I were going to be carding grease fleece, I would want to keep a pair of carders specifically for that. Combing grease fleece, yeah, okay, but not my choice. So anyway, for reasons of clean equipment and storage, that's why I go toward the clean fleece at this point. But yeah, a freshly shorn Romney in the grease, yeah, it just doesn't happen all that often. It's just interesting to think about all these different trends that you said, you know, in the 70s, everybody was spinning in the grease and now kind of the default is to, to sort of wash it. So um, what kind of trends have you seen in spinning and in wool through the years? Well, from the lumpy bumpy, okay, in order to be a hand spun yarn, it has to start with four inch fibers of uh, probably... 28 to 32 microns, although we were start talking about it in, in Bradford scale at that point. Um, and you can't spin anything that's less than four inches, you know. <laughs> and you're going for texture. And if there is no texture, then you can't tell it's hand spun. Up through the business of, okay, I want to spin something that I can't tell the difference from a machine spun yarn. I want it absolutely precise. I want to do a four ply with really skinny plies. And I want everybody not to know that I spun it by hand. When the fact is, all of that's legitimate. And if you have a good hand spun yarn, you should not be able to mistake it for machine spun. On first view, maybe, but as soon as you feel it, you should know there's a difference. But but there have been people saying, okay, I want it perfect. I want it, you know, it's like I'm going for perfection, which historically, I mean, there has been absolutely mind-bogglingly exquisite, fine, even hand-spun. I mean, when you think of how late mechanical processing came to fibers, even though they were one of the first industrialized processes. Um, everything that came before that, I mean, Dhaka muslins, we can't make them now because we can't, with the, the, the plant that produced the cotton is so rare. They've, they've found some of it. Um, and there's starting to be some people saying, okay, let's, let's revitalize the Dhaka muslin process. But those were all hand spun. So if anybody isn't familiar with Dhaka muslins, can you can you explain what those were? Okay, they they are an Indian from India uh, fabric, cotton, extremely fine to the point of being transparent and hand spun and from a particular variety of cotton. Um, then hand spun, hand woven. And uh, go look it up. <laughs> Your mind will just be blown. 
yeah. So anyway, um, hand spinning over the millennia has produced some of the most exquisite textiles that have ever been known. And, you know, we go back and forth as hand spinners about what we want. But that's the biggest shift I've seen is, okay, let's make it funky. No, let's make it perfect. And then it's like, okay, spin something you like and that you enjoy making. Um, And that's one of the things I think that when I teach, I don't teach techniques as a thing. So in a class, my focus is on the raw material um, and working with it and taking any spinner from where they are to the next spot. So I think that the important thing when I'm teaching is simply, okay, here you are, here is this material. Experiment with the material using your normal processes, whatever they are. And then think about, okay, what do I want to do that I can't do yet? And then we kind of touch in on that spot. So I am not the world's greatest technique teacher and never will be. I know enough of everything to kind of give people the next step because I try a lot of stuff. So I think my, my workshops are about the materials and about that growth point wherever anybody is. Um, and if they, if, you know, if they want to spin funky, okay, let's spin funky. If they want to spin more consistently, let's see what you could do that make that happen. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm about experimenting. Are you someone who believes that you have to use your yarn in order to be a good spinner? Not to be a good spinner, no. But I think you're missing a good deal of the pleasure. You know, and if you if you just want to make yarn and like give it to somebody or put it in a basket and admire it, that's fine. But I do think that there is a pleasure that you're denying yourself if you don't. You may not need it. That's okay. Is there a particular sheep breed that you think spinners are overlooking and, and should seek out? Well, the one that immediately comes to mind is Caracal. And part of the reason for that is it is so different from everything that most of us have been, air quotes, trained to think is desirable. It is not you walk up to it and squish it and it feels soft and lovely. It will push your creative envelope and it has capacities that other breeds don't have, um, including this amazing ability to felt and its durability and the incredible colors. So that's that's one that comes to mind. Uh, Caracol is what they made the Astrakhan fabrics out of, right? Yeah. So, you know, at least traditionally 50 years ago, if, if somebody was thinking about Caracol, they were thinking about, you know, very young pelt. Very young or unborn. And in terms of if you have a stillborn lamb, it's an incredible way to make use of that loss. And yet what grew out of that was an industry. And I I have problems with that personally. So I think it might be interesting to spinners to realize that no caracols are for us too. It's not just something that people who were making hats and 
and it helps. Right. And it's an amazing thing uh, biologically how the wool forms uh, wave patterns in the unborn or neonatal lamb. And there are different patterns that show up. And then at a certain point in the growth of the young lamb, it opens out. And it turns into something completely different, which is the adult fleece. A young caracal fleece, where it is a fleece, with the little tip on it that curls, is one of the most beautiful things on the planet. And when I got the samples for the Fleece and Fiber source book, I got some caracal lamb with those lamb tips on it. And they were so beautiful that I almost could not stand to spin them. But I did. And the yarn was beautiful. And I did keep some locks because they are just gorgeous. Someday, maybe I'll paint a, paint a painting of caracal locks just because they're so pretty. Anyway, I happen to like adult caracal. And from any point where, you know, the living animal can be shorn, I'm happy. It's funny, you talked about how caracal makes this incredible felt. And then some people might be surprised to learn there are some wools that really don't make felt. Oh, yeah. Um, the classic ones are the, the British down breeds. And we don't know why wool felts. We have theories. And I've, I've written a lot about this. Um, we, it's still at the theory level. Um, I tend to think we're on the right track with our theories. But we don't know exactly why wool felts. And therefore, we also don't know why those wools don't felt or are very, 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 very difficult to felt. I have a Suffolk sweater that's been through the machine wash, machine dry, warm water, the whole thing. And I have a bunch of swatches from other breeds in that category where I measure them going in and I measure them coming out and they're to the millimeter identical. And that's a quality that we are not taking advantage of because those breeds have dark faces and legs. Therefore, there end up being dark fibers potentially in their fleeces. So if that wool is sold to the wool pool, it is discounted because nobody wants a black fiber in their high-class white fabric that they can dye to any color they want. So anyway, that, that wool is generally wasted, and it could be perfect socks that can go through the washer and dryer. But I thought that felt was because the heat and water opened up the cuticle and they rubbed together and then locked up. Nope. <laughs> Part of that's right. <laughs> that is that is a very, very common understanding. Water does cause the fiber to swell and causes the scales and the cuticle to open up. That's true. There is no evidence that anyone has been able to find that the scales lock together. The current theory has to do with the differential friction effect or DFE. This is going to sound really similar, but it isn't. What that means is when you take a fiber and rub it 
back and forth between your fingers, it will move in a given direction. Okay? It will go toward the root. So, as you are agitating wool in a mass, and you have water opening the scales out, that's true, and you have some lubrication in the way of soap, and all those fibers are moving toward their roots, they end up mashed together and they can't get out again. The scales are not locked together, but the fibers are. This is the theory. This is the current theory. And I buy it, but um, not proven yet. And then the question becomes, why don't the down wolves felt? They too move toward their root if you hold them that way and rub them. But for some reason, probably, possibly, maybe, just winging it here, having to do with the size of the scales, the way their edges of the scales are configured because the edges of scales on different breeds are configured differently, uh, the thickness of the scales. I mean, there's all sorts of things that you can think of that may be different because wool's have such a multitude of varieties but there's something in those wools that keeps them from felting you know you've made me think about a something i've never understood and i wonder if you can help me understand what is the prickle factor ah uh, yes the prickle factor it, besides okay. the thing that has the best name yes it does okay prickle factor is something that's used in industry and it is a thing that can be measured so it is not an a micron average. It is a how many fibers in that mass are below that micron count. So if you have a sample that you run it through the analysis and it comes out and says 97% of the fibers in this mass are less than 30 microns then you are going to say that it passes the prickle factor test. If it has an average of 27 microns, but 15% of them are over 30, it does not. Okay? So the challenge is that that is just for industry, which means that any individual, human or otherwise, um, may find that they are sensitive at a much finer micron count than that. And micron count is not the only thing that affects prickle factor. Prickle factor occurs when the tips of the fibers poke your skin. In general, higher micron count fibers are stiffer than lower micron count fibers, which is part of why industry uses this. However, the thing that they don't measure is the flexibility of the fibers. So, for example, the tips of New Zealand possum fibers are 5 microns. That is smaller than a red blood cell. Some people find that they experience the prickle factor when they are wearing New Zealand possum textiles 
reason, the tip is not flexible. And it bothers some people, doesn't bother others. Again, it's an individual sensitivity thing. So prickle factor, the end of the fiber pokes into your skin. That depends on your sensitivity and it depends on the flexibility of the fiber. And industry says 30 microns is the magic number. Wow. So there's diff- there's all kinds of different stuff going on there. There's there's like, what's the difference among the fibers? Are they flexible or are they stiff? There's And, and how, how sensitive are you? How sensitive are you? Yeah. Um, my daughter for years was like a 20 micron person. You know, it's like, okay, she can handle Kiviet. She can handle cashmere. I can't afford this person. <laughs> Uh, fortunately, as she became an adult, her tolerance increased. She's still sensitive, but she can actually wear other things. Um, so, yeah, it depends on individual sensitivity. So, Deb, what's the next sheep on your list? Uh, this fall, I will be, I hope, I hope, I hope, teaching another Explore 4 workshop which is the four-day event that happens in the San Juan Islands, ideally twice a year, depending on the state of global health. And we will be examining the classic British long wools, all of them, including the ones that we can't get here, which means the Dartmoor Greyface and the Dartmoor Whiteface and the Devon and Cornwall long wool. We can't, we don't have those. So we're going to talk about the long wools, of which there's incredible diversity. I mean, it goes from blue-faced Lester all the way to these, um, I, I call them like the, the big brother wools because they're so hefty. But they're really fun to spin. So I am going to be, uh, I, have a, I have one breed I still need to acquire. And I've had inquiries out about it for a year. I think I'm going to get it. But that's why I have so much wool. It's like, okay, I want to do this workshop. I want to cl- include all of them. One of them is missing. And I've been working on it for a year. Okay. So um, anyway, so the long wools. Yeah, I'm going to be I'm going to be going back around through the long wools again. Well, that's so exciting. And uh, this fall, you're going to be also spinning Florida Cracker and Clune Forest. Florida Cracker. Yes. Tell me about the name Florida Cracker. Okay, um, it has recently been determined that it is a breed separate from the Gulf Coast native. So for quite a while, the Gulf Coast native umbrella included Florida crackers, or what, what are now known as Florida crackers. So a whole collection of breeds that are similar, flocks that are similar, running from Florida all the way around the Gulf Coast down to Texas. And the Livestock Conservancy for quite a while, like said, study. They have the study category. It's like, okay, is there enough distinction? Then there was a really interesting DNA study, which was done not specifically to differentiate those breeds, but partly to look at how much genetic difference is there from one breed to another. 
So they took collections of breeds from different parts with different relationships and they did analysis and said, okay, how near or how far are they from each other? And one of the sets that they took in there was this mob of sheep from the southeastern U.S. And they discovered in that process that there were two clusters and that they were distinct enough to be two breeds. And this is, I think this may be the first time that we've had genetic um, support for one of these decisions. I'm not sure about that. But for the most part, it's been um, other factors that they have looked at. But this one was really clear. Uh, The question then was, what do we call them? And that genetic study actually looked at, uh, they called them Gulf Coast Native or Gulf Coast and Florida Native. And I, I'm not sure who decided Florida Cracker was the name to use uh, because it's in some realms a matter of pride to be a Florida Cracker and in some realms to be pejorative. So I think that the folks who decided on the name decided that it was distinctive, that it was unusual, that it was clearly different from Gulf Coast Native. I mean, Florida Native, Gulf Coast Native, we can get confused. Florida Cracker, Gulf Coast Native, we don't get so confused. So I'm, I'm glad they did it for that reason. Uh, but it was an interesting choice. Well, Deb, I hope that you enjoy your fall of long wools, and I will look forward to spinning some Florida Cracker with you this fall. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Deb. Thanks, Anne. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.